You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello, everybody. Peter here. Welcome to the historic Kerouac Alley. It's lovely to be back and live after being stuck online for two and a half years. So, welcome. Uh, tonight's event is being co-sponsored by Alta. We're really happy to have them in the house. Before we begin, of course, it is customary to uh, acknowledge that we are on Ramatish Ohlone ancestral unceded homeland. It's nice to take a moment and uh, think about that, what that means, and uh, pay our respects. So we're happy to have John Freeman and Forrest Gander with us. It's been two days in a row in Kerouac Alley of poetry. I mean, don't you love that? It's fantastic. So, um, a word about Alta. It's a wonderful quarterly publication that celebrates California and the West, and we have some at the front counter. So please check them out. And also, that is where we're keeping the books tonight. So you may purchase books, have them come out, uh, John and Forrest will be happy to sign. They'll be right here. Both of our authors tonight are Copper Canyon Press authors, and both books are published by the fantastic Copper Canyon Press. Those of you who don't know, they are kind of a West Coast premier publisher of just the most amazing poetry. John Freeman is celebrating the publication of his new collection, Wind Trees. What a title. So many of you know John as the founder of Freeman's Literary Annual, as well as being the executive editor of Alfred A. Knopf. He is also a writer with numerous books under his belt, including How to Read a Novelist and Dictionary of the Undoing, amongst many others. His poetry collections include the books Maps and The Park. His work has been translated into more than 20 languages and appeared in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, Ziziva. Hey, we got Ziziva in the house tonight, too, folks. Yeah. He's also a former editor of Granta and uh, makes his home in New York City. So joining him tonight is the fabulous Forrest Gander, celebrating hot off the press. His new poetry collection entitled Not... Uh, and it features some fantastic photographs by Jack Shear. Forrest Gander is, of course, a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, author, translator, and essayist. He's the author of numerous books of poetry, fiction, and essays, of which we have some in the front counter, so check them out. His books include the collections Twice Alive and the Pulitzer Prize-winning Be With. His translations include the work of Gozo Yoshimasu, Pablo Neruda, Alfonso Diaquino, and Raul Zarita. He makes his home here in Northern California. To get the evening started, I want to welcome Blaze Sariga of Alta Magazine to say a few words. Blaze. Thank you. Um, my name is Blaze Zariga. I'm the managing editor of Alta Journal, and we're just so pleased to be here tonight um, with John and Forrest. Hope you're as excited as I am. And uh, big thanks to, to Peter and Stacey Lewis, Elaine Katzenberger, uh, Paul Yamazaki. No? Okay, there we go. I got a graph gravelly or something. I don't know what. I'm not sure. What is, what is he a Kerouac voice? And he's on, uh, somebody playing the piano and all. 
get into the, some jazz. I don't know. Um, by the way, as my role as managing editor at Alta, I've had the real honor and, and, and privilege to, to work with both Forrest and, and John Freeman. Uh, we had published a poem um, by Forrest called Not Without. It's a collaboration with the artist Ashwini Bot right there. Really great. Uh, John Freeman, we uh, published his poem Friendship about his friend uh, Barry Lopez. Um, and John is also the host of the California Book Club, which is our free monthly gather gathering. Uh, about 10,000 members now. Next month is Kim Stanley Robinson. I encourage everyone to check it out, uh, buy that book. Um, and John is also a regular contributor to Alta. Uh, brilliant essays, criticism. Last year he was nominated for a National Magazine Award uh, for his, his fine writing. Um, and for those of you not familiar with Alta, as Peter said, we have copies inside or visit altaonline.com. Uh, really encourage you to do that. I also encourage you to please purchase these two great collections, support uh, uh, these writers, support City Lights. Uh, and without further ado, thank, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. A really quick thank you. Yeah. Really quick thank you to Beth Spotswood, who's here tonight also from Alta, who was invaluable in helping make this a reality. So John, do you want to come on, have a seat? And Forrest, um, do you want to do you want to read sitting down or do you want to read standing up? I have to stand. Up. You have to stand. Do you want a lectern or? No, no, no. no. Okay. So we'll do that. So my book is a, a collaboration with Dr. Jack Shear, who's. Uh, the husband of uh, the artist Ellsworth Kelly, and he has a number of uh, books of photography out. Um, but it's going to help if you see the images. So I brought three books out, um, really uh, sort of having to bend um, <laughs> bend somebody's arm. Um, so if you walk off with these books, I have to pay for them. And don't walk off with them. I'll come after you. Uh, so here's one to share at this end. Uh, Warning, there are naked men. I'll tell you what they show them. And I'm super excited to read with uh, John Freeman, whose poems I, uh, I really like. Um, Trees, Wind, uh, very Chinese title, no pronouns, the, just the pure thing. And I'm looking forward to um, talking to him about his book. I have uh, a very particular readings of it I'm going to share. So if we turn to page eight and nine, we'll, we'll see the first, uh, the first image. Exhausted, I can't climb anymore. Yet I could possibly hang here for a moment, stop this exertion, just cling, catching my breath, to this cascade of long, dark hair, which she has let down from the window, the window that didn't look nearly so high, only balcony level, wasn't it, when I started those hours ago? Haven't I been climbing for hours? Above me, my overextended arms quiver and ache all the way down to their sockets, the round, swollen muscles of my shoulders press to my ears. Is she calling? I can't hear. But when I look up, I see the cascade of her long hair. Nothing beyond that. But it's as difficult to pause as to climb. 
So I keep going. To tell the truth, I never paused. Deaf and blind, I keep tugging myself up into that falling blackness. I, who am bringing her the moon. Okay. It goes with the photograph, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, next one I'm going to read is on page 1213. Good? I'm not ashamed. It's not in shame that I walk toward you with my face and genitals covered. The cloth doesn't shield me so much as it shields you. I am too beautiful, simply too beautiful. The scored striations in my thighs, the marvelous balls of my feet, the flutes of my clavicles, how could you begin to see them? You've never come across anything so gracefully sheathed inside itself. I inhabit all my body at once, to the fullest extent, every cell brimming. The particles of air I displace as I walk toward you convene in my wake to gossip over the shapeliness they so briefly caressed. Behind me, there is always that whispering. Look, even my shadow tries to resemble me. The throbbing vein in my throat has no likeness. And if my sex didn't remain a secret, there is simply no telling. I cover myself as a mercy, believe me, because you have no idea about this kind of beauty. Behold me, and you would know you've lived your life in a closed coffin. Are you ready for that? I take another step toward you, and darkness streams over me. Darkness flocks. It gloms to me like a shroud, a bruise, for so many have bruised themselves to be near me. Um, I think I'll just I'll read two more, and and they're sh shortish. Oh, this one is. I don't have the page. Oh no. So what page is that? 1415. What are you holding so tightly? You can see it's a corpse. But where are you taking it? It goes where I go. Aren't you far ahead of the funeral procession? It's a private affair. Meaning it's someone you loved? Someone I would have loved to see make better choices. In time, things will get better for you. You don't know that. What's to come is just a sentence of my duration. What, you don't think feelings can change? If time were some sort of measurement of change, it stopped for me. Say what you will, don't you still have the present and your own choices to make? You think that between the past and the future, there's an interval in which I'm considering your question, but there is no interval. You don't believe in the present? My future is what I carry my corpse into. This, um, I s spent a lot of time uh, translating a Bolivian poet, co-translating a Bolivian poet uh, named Jaime Sainz, a visionary poet who's very influenced by Aymara culture, in which it's one of the only cultures studied in which 
when they talk about um, the future, they point behind them. When they talk about the past, they'll uh, sweep their hands in front of them. The future, the, the future and the word for back is the same, and um, the word for the past also means um, front or yeah, forward. And in their language, it's impossible to say anything like, um, Joan of Arc died on the stakes in 13 whatever. You, you can't construct a sentence like that because every sentence has to be qualified by whether you witnessed this or whether you overheard it. And linguists think, anthropologists think that in a culture in which it's so important to testify to whether you've seen it or not, you put the past, which has been witnessed, you can attest to, in front of you and the future behind you. That just sort of connected to the time um, quality in the poem I just read. Last poem, and then let's hear from John. Uh, this this is this is also I don't have a place in my imagination in uh, an alley just like this. Right. I stripped off my clothes on the back seat of the bus and kicked out the emergency door dragging this blanket full of lice after me. I ran right past the rusty pickup following the bus. The old farmer had his window down and his radio was playing Ode to Joy. This is right where I want to be, I said to myself as I lifted the blanket and it poured out around me like sorghum from a split barrel. They set the dogs after me, of course, but my heart is a horse. This is right where I want to be. I noticed a tiny whirlwind of dust keeping pace on the side of the road, the smell of coming rain. I could hear dogs barking and I felt thirstier for everything. I wasn't slowing down. I passed a street corner, empty, except for one man leaning back into all those faded papers stapled to the telephone pole. He was wearing dark glasses, playing a clarinet. He didn't even notice me. I've got a voice like an ice pick, and I didn't say a word, though I wanted to shout, hey, look, it's me. I have inherited the earth and not a single shadow. I will never be lonely, but I hadn't come to speak my mind. I'd come to be spoken of. Thank you so much. Oh, it's so cool to read with uh, Forrest Skander um, for a lot of reasons. One is that he continuously has been introducing us to the many possibilities of collaboration um, and, and as a translator, but also as a, as a writer who really appreciates and loves and leaps off from and engages with photographs. Um, I am from Sacramento, so if Sally, my, one of my first experiences with Sally Mann was in was in one of your books, um, and to to see those these photographs by Jack Shearer is something beautiful um, and and wondrous. And uh, at some point, I'll read a poem in response to that because uh, as a college student, I was a, a life drawing model, and I was admiring the the, the the beauty with which Forrest was writing about the the male figure, um, and. Uh, 
it, it corresponds to a previous chat book of his in which there's more female figures in photographs and I we can talk about that later the, the other reason I love um, Forrest's work is, is his, his ability to map uh, our our lives and our imaginations on um, geology and, and, and geography and it feels like so many poems to me kind of fall a little quiet and flat because they, they, there's no frame the frame is all entirely interior and yet whenever I read his work I feel I feel like I'm on the earth I'm in a I'm in a landscape and there's there's drama to it and to me that 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 always feels quintessentially Western American uh, not Western as in cowboys but as in like there's this landscape that always can to some degree diminish us in size and that we need that to remember who we are and, and what we are so I'll start with a poem that Forrest suggested which I'm I'm very glad about because um. I never thought I'd read it because I, I thought I was the only person who was chased by dogs in towns. And I thought that was my previous experience as a paper boy where everywhere I went, dogs were like, he's here, get him. And I'd just be running. And so I went to this town in Texas called Corsicana and I went for a, a jog and, and all the dogs were on the dog internet. They're like, he's coming, get him. <laughs> so this is called Yard Dog, Yard Dogs. It was a town where dogs chased anything that moved. Bikes, cars, you. People left their gates open, a crack. The dogs knew to wait until you were upon them before exploding into carols of snarl, frothing, raging, this chain isn't gonna stop me spasms. That end abruptly when you hightailed it around a corner, ass forward, legs pinwheeling, the dog behind you doing whatever it is dogs do when they laugh to themselves. <laughs> so this this, do this this book is slightly inspired by um, by dogs actually. I spent a lot of time in the last couple of years following a dog around the woods um, and it's an amazing thing when you learn to follow an animal um, and it trusts you and you trust it and it shows you the world that it knows. Um, and so I'm going to read this, this poem um, called Among the Trees. Each morning on the common, Martha stops beneath the conifers, paws on dry needles, the part of our daily stroll where she allows me to kiss her stilled German head. A long way from the boar hunts and pheasant shoots she was bred for in 1840s Saxony. The spruce are immigrants, too. The cops planted to temper winds on the newly cleared wood. Now they stand apart. Transplants, like all souls, turn toward one another while we pass through a softer wind. Yeah. This, this book is dedicated to that dog, Martha, who is a, who's a wonderful animal and sweet soul and um, and uh, you know when you start to slow down and look at the world around you the at an animal's level and with their senses and their their uh their vulnerability to their senses um it all sorts of other things kind of suddenly are, are apparent and i on a on a walk in the woods near my house in wimbledon i i was i was standing by a brook and then i realized that this um this bird was looking at me you know with that bird look where it's like and, I, and it was fishing, and um, and I was interrupting it. And I thought, man, I'm 
I am the thing that messes up the balance of this place sometimes. And so I, I tried hard to, to, to describe what I saw. It's called still. Every day at lunch, the gray heron canters down from her branch in the brook, leaving behind turquoise eggs. There were two birds, but kids killed one with a slingshot. So now she hooks alone, casting with her giant beak, stirring the water with a foot. The legends tell of what revenge nature will wreck. We'll be torn limb from limb. They'll feast on our necks. None of this seems true of the heron in the brook, using her wings to create shade, lure small fish into the coves made by trash, visitors dump amidst the glades, cans of coke, t-shirts, a dishwasher, an old skirt. It's become the breakfast table for her. And us, what are we for? To watch, mourn, to exclaim gladly? I've nothing to hunt, to trap, Nothing to own, walking these woods with a fading map, miles from my suburban home. I love that I'm reading this to a <laughs> to a hip hop beat. Is this like the this is like being sampled three times over? It's fantastic. The heron looks up and I and seeing I am neither prey nor threat, returns to her disguise, vanishes again in the weeds, standing so still. She is simply a reed, a white bill, two eyes. Thank you. I want to read two more poems and then we'll we'll chat for a bit. Um, but the first is also kind of just one of the premises of this book. As I was writing it and ex and experiencing the experiences that led to it, was was just a, a re revelation that you know what if what if trees are the living gods of our world? You know, and what if what would that mean for how we live and what would that mean about our ancestorship and where we come from? And I'll read another poem later, sort of more towards this, but it also um, made dying and the, the sort of ultimate mortality that all of us face seem a little bit less necrotic. And in fact, kind of, that we are all built to some degree from the woods from which we come. So I, I wrote this poem called Wood. It also is the kind of poem you write when you turn 46 and you look in your mirror and see your father. <laughs> Wood. One morning, time trips a reel and I'm confronted with the object I will become, carpentered for eternity. Hear the wood's grain, the carve and gouge that felt like time but was merely my body. How little it belongs to me, even the face I've inherited from a hundred mothers and fathers. The grove beneath, vast and humble, waits. Her arms so huge, she has built a house for billions and has word left over for bookshelves, pews, for tools and decoration. And uh, this last poem, um, as I mentioned, I'm from Sacramento and I still sometimes think, how, how did I end up in this um, non-Sacramento-based life that I seem to live? And, um, you know, I, I grew up with a, with a mother who read a lot and studied the Russian Revolution in college, but never left the United States, and would have loved to, but uh, didn't get to. Um, and I, I sometimes think about that, and it, it comes like a, like a kind of gust of, not melancholy, but of sensory input. Um, 
And as I also mentioned, I, I spent a lot of time with my clothes off in college. Let's just put it frankly, getting paid to take my clothes off. And by the way, when I saw those pictures, I was like, Forrest has a great ass. I mean, <laughs> holy shit. <laughs> um, but uh, so I, at some point, I, I had one of those, you know, Medlin type moments about um, college and nudity, um, but also, you know, leaving um, and realizing that um, we're all kind of floating on a series of memory wormholes that, that take us back and forth to where we're from and back and forth to the people that, that we love. And uh, I also want to read this because um, well, I'm in California and, and, it, and Paris feels a long time, a long ways away. It's called Borrowed Finery. And on those nights, ice beveling the windows, Leslie and I would visit Patricia in her flat glowing lamps and radiator heat, Philadelphia winter whipping with its usual rages as we drank mail-order coffee, thought the smell of Paris, whiffs of chocolate and cinnamon, how you think Paris smells when you haven't been there. My mother never went, she drank the same coffee, cupped her mug like Patricia, warmed with that same Scotch-Irish blush, Vivaldi burbling in the background like a Saint-Germain bistro an imagined city encouraging us there in real ways on the outskirts of Philadelphia. Comfort, important even when it comes from a box. How starkly good our lives seem to me now, plain to an ascetic purity of study. I worked then as an art model, waking in Leslie's bed. We'd walk to class together and then I'd disrobe my body, still warm from her. In that instant, it became something outside me. For an hour, I sat in the gap between me and the form I was born into not looking out, simply resting, the best pose reading Wolf's Diaries, a wet day and I am glad of the rain, I have talked too much. What joy not to speak, to simply exist, the scratching, a music of concentration, the furl and crack of a new sheet being turned, even in frustration, a beautiful sound, its own weather, space heater warming behind me like a very focused sunbeam. All day afterward, I'd feel the palm of it on my backside until the chill set in. Thirty years ago, those visits, I opened the bare cupboard this morning in New York, radiators hissing, windows smeared with snow, and there's but one packet of coffee, a leftover gift from the same mail-order company still sending out coffee with classical music, dreams of Paris, and all my bodies sit inside my body, some of them still asking for cinnamon, some asking for her and some no longer asking. A city so quiet, it's almost imaginary. The past, an unlit street I can follow home in the dark. Thank you. So John's voice and his poems, the voice in his poems is often, um, as you, you heard, uh, a kind of a meditative colloquial voice. But when you look carefully at the poems, they're also constructed with a lot of uh, very subtle rhyme and off-rhyme um, that gives it that lyric quality. But I want to ask you, in relation to this last poem that you read, which to me connects to so many of the others, this question. <clears throat> in, in many of your poems, uh, both in your last book and this book, you're drawn to looking at one thing through another one time period through another, one conception of the natural world through another. In wind, for instance, you consider the difference between the wind of the ancient Greeks, which is God-haunted, 
um, with the 21st century Western wind. In helping, you juxtapose the charged image of those goats and wildfires on the hill with the image of a speaker driving past in an air-conditioned car. In the green tram, perigee, and quarantine, you find yourself oscillating between states of being, between presence and absence, gratitude and darkness, the tenderness of one couple and the tenderness of another couple that you're looking at through a window. In Borrowed Finery, you write about modeling for the art students, and you come to imagine that, as you just read, all my bodies sit inside my body. I wonder, and you can tell me, absolutely no, Forrest, that's not it at all. Um, but I wonder if this sort of empathic awareness of otherness and this orientation of self, place, and time via others and elsewhere and longing is a way of seeing the world that's been cultivated by your internationalism, the way your many travels have allowed you to experience yourself as a foreigner. Uh, what an amazing, uh, intelligent and, and generous question. Um, I think uh, I've always been an observer, you know, where I see, I, I had a student once who, um, was a systems engineer and, and he described how we our brains teach us to think that we're in control of the rest of ourselves and our 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 ultimate what decisions and what we do and he said really it's just clockwork and machinery and he was saying this as he was saying this his his face was moving to emphasize some of the points and i i had this really strange kind of epiphany where which is that you know, our ability to watch and observe the outside world is part of this intensely sophisticated neurological mechanism by which we situate ourselves in the world. And for whatever reason, very early, I don't know why, uh, I, I developed a, a feeling of being stepped back from myself, you know, that, that, that my face was not a mask, but that it was a barrier between myself and the world. And I felt comfortable in that and cozy and I would sometimes catch myself in a, in a passing reflection and feel extremely estranged from the image of myself and I still feel that way when I see my photograph I think that's not me you know and and I I don't long to find what is me but I sometimes feel much more at home with with seeing things that are not me either animals or wildlife or other people I can sort of imagine myself into you know what it feels like to sit you know with my legs crossed outside in the cold or sometimes when I see see a bird flying by I can think I can almost feel I can imagine what it must feel how great it would feel to feel lifted and I think this one of the things that I, occurred to me when I was reading not it, it reminded me somewhat of the Sweeney poems by Seamus Haney and it's like you you your 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 poetry it, because you you also are uneasy by the self, made uneasy by the self. You're not uninterested in it, but you slide, you you elide it. Um, this this is these are to me very clearly persona like poems, and you you're, you and the, there's all these different aspects of the persona, like uh, there's bravado. There's the I I I love that the word shame comes up so early because there is a kind of sense we're taught shame. In, in, in Western culture a lot about our bodies and and you it, you can very carefully kind of have to unpick that and I, I 
I'm curious to you about what it felt like to try on this persona after having some very intimate poems in the last couple of years and, and to some degree personal ones. It was a great relief for me. I hadn't um, anticipated, I've never written persona poems. I didn't know how to write. Um, Jack Shear asked me to, if I <clears throat> might try to write to some of these photographs of his, <clears throat> I hadn't been like sitting around thinking, I'd love to write about some naked men um, wrestling with this black cloth. Uh, so in doing it, I came to voices that I hadn't accessed before. It opened up something really new to me, and um, and that was the ex that's the exciting thing about this book for me. The thing that you said um, just a little while ago after reading the tree poem about <clears throat> the confrontation with that otherness, that otherness which nevertheless shares even trees like 70% of its DNA with us, um, made you feel easier about your own mortality. <clears throat> um, makes me think of the trees of City Hall, which I had a question about also, but which is just what you're talking about. Um, speaking of tangential worlds where he's in one world and thinking about another world. Uh, the, the trees of City Hall is an example of what might be considered documentary poetics in the fact that it includes facts and numbers and dates and you imagine trees that have watched so to speak long swaths of human history um i took ashwini down to see ashwini who grew up in india southern india to see the um the the redwood forests in the in the national park what was it called the park the sequoias and of course it's incredibly humbling and it does make you feel like these trees have watched for 4,000 years. People like us flicker by, and animals flicker by. So they've, in, in this poem of, of John's, and in others in his collection, he ties the human and the non-human worlds together, often with analogies. The trees, quote, stand around City Hall like a group of elders on a Friday night when wind is cold, rubbing their hands together. And in another poem, he writes, maybe I am like the wind. We've been warned forever about the dangers of anthropomorphism. Um, and there's a Berkeley critic and poet, John Shoptaw, who writes that what we really have now is anthropomorphobia, a kind of refusal to grant animals subjectivity and that to empathize beyond humankind, poets must be ready to commit to pathetic fallacy and to be charged with anthropomorphism. So I'm wondering, how do you think about the environmental ethics? Because in many ways, John's book is a, a book of environmental ethics. Um, how do you feel about the environmental ethics of the poems in Wind Trees and about anthropomorphism? Oh man, that's a that's a great question. Um, was you know the Theodore Roosevelt poem? Um, uh, where he, where he tries to describe the trees, and he, and I, I wish I could have this poem with me. It was in the J.D. McClatchy anthology of 20th century American poetry, and at, as I was coming, you know, writing these poems, I he has this amazing poem where he, he he describes all the different ways that you can describe a leaf, and he basically unfurls the, the full capacity of of language in its descriptive and lyric forms, 
and says it's it's still triumphed. The elite still triumphs over over the, that that impulse, and and yet he still wrote the poem and he published the poem, and I, I feel like one of the things that um, I, I try I tried to avoid being afraid of in this book was was to put things away um, for 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 that fear that somehow the most amazing book of poems about a wood would be a leaf between two pages. Um, and because to some degree, what you do in, in, in writing in general, and poetry specifically, I think, is to transmit feeling. Like, the, to me, the most important thing to do in a poem is to take a feeling and using language and its signs and symbols and using syntax and, you know, enjambments and all the, the tools that are, is, is, to, is to transmit that feeling to, to the reader, and maybe that reader's in the Berkeley Public Library. Maybe they haven't, they don't have access to a wooded area. Maybe, maybe they haven't felt that that strange um, uplift, that sort of hovering feeling that you can get in certain natural environments. And that's not to say that you need to inspire people, but I I want to take people to where I, where I was when I wrote some of these poems, or, or some of the places that that inspired the poems, and. I, I do think um, we have a lot that we don't know about trees in the natural world. We're just beginning to learn that they talk to each other and how they pass messages. And Suzanne Simard has done all this amazing work to show that trees are not, they don't think of themselves necessarily individual, that they're like this radical socialist collective. They're not just helping each other, they're helping other species. And, you know, if, if, if we as a species who are endangering the world through the amounts of carbon that we pump out into it, um, can can be even guided a little bit towards more kindlier ways of, of being through interacting with an imaginary tree, then I'm happy to be that person to bring it to the page. I, you, you mentioned um, maybe you should read your Redwood your, your Redwood poem, because I there's so many poems of yours I love, but I, I recently went to Seattle, and my friend there has a sequoia in his neighborhood, and he, he calls it... Um, uh, her Majesty, and we've always been to the, Her Majesty at night, and it's like this 300-foot-tall gargantuan tree that, from afar, looks like a, a triangle. And then you come up closer and closer and closer to it, and it's it's so beautiful. And you stand beneath it, and it's got these 12 to 1500 different branches, all in perfect harmony, that are kind of silver in the night, and they they make this sound and, oh, as the wind blows through it. And it's, I'm sorry, but like, you could be the stone-cold atheist, but you stand between something like that, or beneath it, and you think, all right, I, I got an intimation of, of religious feeling here. Or, or sp- and I, I, I think producing that feeling is, is, is something that I feel often in your work. And, and it's unusual because you, you often, like Gary Snyder, you, 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 you've, you've You've planed down all the, the kind of lyric movements that often are called lyric, and and there's this elemental kind of, you know, it, it's especially true in, in "Be With," you know, in the second part of that book, and it's true in these in these poems. You know, it's like you describe the body in its most elemental form that it it, it it takes on a voice. It feels like it's a body with a voice rather than a person, and I I think that's such a gift. But I also had similar feelings about this poem that you that you might have, Andy. Well, it's fantastic, yeah. Um, but it's so interesting that you, 
One of my questions, which I won't ask of you now because you just put me on the spot, but um, <laughs> he's got this language some, sometimes. Uh, the, so feeling, which he's talking about being the most important thing about his poems, and Ezra Pound, only emotion endures, um, would say the same thing. But a lot of the feeling in John's poetry comes, um, comes out through the pulse, through the rhythm of the sentencing, which is really interesting, especially when he's not using punctuation. He'll use things like caesura to, uh, to, um, to change the rhythm. And then he has moments that sound to me very much like, um, like Gary Snyder in how he shifts from a long sentence to a, a very short fragment. It's like you're walking the dog and you let it out on the leash and then suddenly you jerk it back. Um, so something like this, thus my living room turned into a boxing gym, couch the cut corner. Like what, couch the cut corner after a full sentence? And that goes on, I've done this before, retreated fr from what couldn't be controlled by measuring, rage out in iron, one plate, two, the stack. Those kinds of muscular contractions in the language carry a lot of feeling. Even before we get semantic um, meaning, we get meaning from rhythm. But back to the poem that John mentions, which is from my book very kindly lent to me from who? Mike? From Frank. <clears throat> um, I thought this poem, um, which is called The Redwoods, would go really well with John's The Language of Trees. The Redwoods. <clears throat> well, nearby, but where? In that turpinated air, among iterated redwood limbs, now flocked with mats of epiphyte, a stellar jay starts and restarts its shredded arpeggios, not description, and one of a nesting merlet's soft black eyes mirrors the harlequinades of a vole, plump, whiskered, cylinder of fur, diligently, this is not description, but an unacknowledged chapter, stuffing its cheek with green needles, while two hundred feet below, in the understory, Whipplevine, punctured by snags and deadfall and sorrel and sword and bracken fern, splashing up from the soil, not description, but an unacknowledged chapter of our own memoir, rich with chumbling volcanics, andesite mostly, and dacite, and rotting redwood needles that lightly tremble with nematodes and some spider-like arthropod. Who can name? A ground squirrel crossing the dry creek, edged with alder, its tail vertical as a flagpole. Its instance, all instances, interpenetrating, an endless memoir of ravelment in which our case likewise has been underwritten. Careens between its burrow and fire caves in the massive redwood trunks, glistening with slug trails, rimmed by rooting mushrooms. Oh. That poem was such a such an inspiration, and and th I, I I think you probably like uh, some of the poems of W. S. Merwin. And me too. And I, I, I realized when I was writing this book that the only way to write it was, would be to do something different with the, my syntax. And 
frightened to write about, you know, because I, I feel like, and you take a lot of risks in doing it, and I wonder if you could talk a bit about writing into against or with these, or into these photographs versus the ones in not. Um, so that book he has is, is a collaboration I did with uh, the the post Buto dancers Eko and Koma. Has, has anybody here seen them perform? Yeah, I have, Peter. They they move very very slowly, um, and uh, performed for most of their careers as a couple, nude, um, until their kids were in high school and and their kids' parents were seeing their performances and the kids said. Come on, mom, dad. <laughs> we gotta go to the school with these kids. <laughs> and then they started using some costumes. But um, but part of uh, I mean, what a, a collaboration can be very much like a translation. It's a form of um, of listening, of listening deeply into someone else's mind, someone else's body, their rhythms. I think it's more of a spiritual activity than some kind of trans um, transactional uh, activity and it and collaboration models for me um, how I want to be in the world which is sort of what John's talking about too with the humility uh, before other species the you know we're all of us here in this cold alley and thank you for coming are you know in the middle of um, a human caused environmental crisis of proportions that um, that human beings haven't experienced since the last ice age um, it's it's a massive thing that's going on and and our complicity in it has to do with our egocentrism our view of ourselves as this apex species that isn't dependent upon uh, other species despite the fact that John right here right now has a million bacteria crawling up the inside of his knee and there are you know there are helmet I should get that checked out <laughs> helmet worms in Peter's stomach that are helping him digest his food and then all of us all of us have DNA from parasites that long ago became integrated in our own DNA we're not the, the whole racist thing about blood purity there's no blood purity and there's not even species purity we already are a community and in recognizing our relationship to others and our dependence on those other species I think we can change the way that we act in the world can, can, can I ask you to read breath because it feels like it's um, an under it underscores some of what you just said but it's it does it in poetic terms which means it might pop up on you. All right, so I'll read this and then you read a poem and then let's, yeah, yeah. then we'll dance. <laughs> Breath. Early draft of the world, or has all that came before made them its repository, grove of slash. They are flowerless dirt, wind moan over leafy mound, strewn with two human forms, veined and branched. To become what one was, that never happens. But now the ground wrinkles with their languorous pendiculation, crescent shoulder blade and blue bays expanding between expanding, contracting ribs. 
that the recognizable mammalian familiarity recedes in exposures, in dilated time, become one, inhuman, beyond animal, are they? Oh, I love that, and I love the way that you work with, you know, time as a material. You know, um, I love that Bob Haas book, Time and Materials. It's one of the most amazing books of the last decade and a half, two decades. And when you look at a photograph, you're looking at time, and when you're looking at geology, you're looking at at time. And I think one of the the distortions of our self-centeredness is the fact that we cannot see time because we only see it in, in human terms. And that, that is just beautiful. <laughs> I, I hire these guys to follow me everywhere. <laughs> oh, this is like, it's, it's like uh, streaking. Streaking the quad. Uh, I want to read this poem, The Language of Trees, because it re resonates with what you've been saying. And um, then if there's questions, we'll take them. And if not, we'll all get warm. Um, and you can warm yourself inside on City Lights' books. It's no cost at all. The Language of Trees. How little a tree says. What is a canopy but an offer of shelter? A branch but a search for light? What is a trunk but a commitment? Or bark but an awareness that life eventually burns? That neighbors are prone to attack, to latch on, to harvest the finest inner essence they can reach by pincer, by fungus, by axe. Trees have learned these things over time. How to offer up the dead parts of their bodies first so the world we call the world will ignore that most of what matters happens out of sight, a few feet beneath our boots where they pass the cup and needn't call it generosity or spread news of a coming drought, draw water to a dying friend because maybe there's no single word for tree, or perhaps that's all there's been, alarm, for some time. The tree listeners say so, those magical few who decode the electrical pulses that travel deep in the root structures that fan out like galaxies, ganglia mixing with fungi, a crowded bazaar of trade, friendship, even love, that stretches for miles, tell stories, an epic of love and despair. What the scientists hear, they mostly say, is panic and distress. The trees, they might be saying other things they don't know how to hear yet from the hormones that course through their giant collective body, as if any of us do not feel a similar planing down to what is sayable when so much is ringing in our limbs, rising up in low frequencies, the rush of familiarity, the cops in the woods huddling together in the wind, a spell asking for confirmation, as if what needs to be said, needs to be said. Thank you. Anybody have a question for Forrest or anyone want to say anything? Please. Oh, uh, I might be mispronouncing his name because it's not. No, no, it wasn't Teddy Roosevelt. Although that would be pretty cool. He's like he was both a preservationist and he wrote about trees. Um, no, Theodore Rufke. Is that how? Rufke. Yeah, um, I think it's. I think it might even be called the language of trees. Um, he's got a bunch of.
He's not read much anymore, but I think in his lifetime he, he only won about three Pulitzers or something. <laughs> Just a reminder that time takes all. Yeah, okay. I've I've become one with my chair. Yeah. About uh, five minutes before <laughs> this started, but I have read his books as you can tell. And, um, I wrote him a fan letter a couple of years ago and sent him a book. And, um, so we've known him. Yeah, I feel very sympathetic. It's pretty cool how people you don't know live on the other side of, you know, the country or the world and are in that kind of same wavelength. Um, yeah, Barb. I love your reference to Robert Hobbs because it really gives you a sense of how much time means Listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com/events.